let me begin. Quicksand. Anybody ever encountered quicksand? No, they're not here to tell you, wouldn't be, would you? Certainly not that fella. Yeah, we don't know what happened to him, but he's never been seen since. Quicksand is a substance where over time its solidity increases, but it's, it's, it's so volatile, so sensitive, that the slightest movement causes fluidity. And so if you fall in the quicksand, the best you can do is stay still because it solidifies. But as movement occurs, as stresses go through the sand, so it becomes fluid. And the more stress, the greater the stress, the more you struggle, the quicker you sink. I mean, I, I, I only know that by reading it, not by experience, but apparently that's how it is. I want to suggest to you, friends, that the law, when I say the law, especially look if, this, if you're just joining this sermon series, is really summed up in everything in that part of the Bible. It's what we call the Old Testament. It has much value, but what we're saying is the value that it doesn't have is the value in, in, in instructing us how to live as Christians. The New Testament does that. And what we're looking at in Galatians is that argument developed for us. And so as we come to look at the law, what we're saying is we can liken the law or the Old Testament to quicksand. What do I mean by that? We can liken it to quicksand. What am I getting at? It's a trap you. And the more you do of what, the more of what happens. Yeah, the more you try and facilitate it, accommodate it, do it, the quicker you sink and become its victim. And so therefore, it's in contrast to law that Jesus, remember these words in John chapter 1, verse 17, the law came through Moses, but what has Jesus brought to us that stands now instead of Moses? It's something new instead of the law. Did the law came through Moses? Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So what we're saying is Jesus revolutionizes religion, revolutionizes how we engage with God. He turns everything that we could possibly know about how we know God on its head. It's why Jesus' name is the, is the most famous name in all the world today. Did you know that? There is no other name in religious circles or otherwise, in any domain that is more known, better known than the name of Jesus because he has revolutionized this world, particularly how we know and relate to God. I want to look at that with you this morning. Well, in chapter 2, we had the introduction last week. You can hear that online if you wish. But we're in chapter 2, verses 11 to 21 that Penny so nicely read for us. Thank you, Penny. This is what we're going to do. We're going to work through the verses, verse by verse. In order to make it a more bite-sized, we're going to break it up into two halves. Firstly, 11 to 14, under this heading. Actions speak louder than words. So let's start at verse 11. All the verses that we quote, by the help of my uh, able assistant, Meg at the back, will come up on the screen for you. Uh, if they don't, uh, uh, we'll get there. I mean, because it's, it's very difficult for the person following me to follow me, particularly because I speak so fast. 
So we'll do our best, okay? So verse 11, when Peter came to Antioch, I, that's Paul, so Peter is one apostle, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Paul is a new disciple of Jesus, possibly the 12th disciple who replaced Judas. So two of the greats of the faith. When Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him face to face because he was clearly in the wrong. When I saw that they were not acting in line, verse 14, with the truth of the gospel, I, Paul, said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Two of the great men of faith of the church that Jesus began, uh, the foundations of that church, the pillars of it, if you like, at conflict. It's bizarre. Why? What's going on? Let me show you. Let me show you a bit of what's happening here. Let me take you back to verse 12, and we'll work through it. Before certain men came from James. Does anybody know who this James is? Yes, he's either the brother of Jesus, and if you're from ancient Eastern culture, even modern Eastern culture, you are, you are very normally referred to someone as your brother if he was your, not just your blood brother, but your cousin. You referred to your cousins as brothers. So James is either Jesus' blood brother or his cousin within his family. So James is doing what? Does anyone know what James at this juncture of church history is doing in what location? He's heading of the Jerusalem church. He's now the head of that church. And some, so we're told, listen to these words, before certain men came from James. So James, the brother or cousin of Jesus from the Jerusalem church, sends a delegate a group of people, to Peter with a message. Peter is the great Peter. Remember, though James is now leading the church in Jerusalem, it's Peter's name that carries the greatest weight. He's the one that Jesus, as it were, put in charge. He's the one who's the natural leader of the group. So Peter's name carries great weight across Christendom, particularly in Jerusalem. And so James is sending him a word, okay? We're not sure, exa we're not sure exactly what he says to him, but whatever he says to him, as a result of what he says to him, Peter's behavior changes. Okay? Whatever he says, Peter's behavior changes. It'd be equivalent if I says, go and get a shave. Okay? And then people on this half of the room all look different the next week. Okay? <laughs> right? It's something that is said to Peter by the delegate from James changes his behavior. Okay, and it's important. Listen to this. But when they arrived, the delegate from James, he, Peter, began to draw back and separate himself from Gentiles. What was he doing before this? What kind of relationship was Peter conducting with how they were referred to by Jews of the time, Gentile dogs? How was Peter, a quintessential Jew, conducting himself with Gentiles before this delegate? He was having dinner with them. I mean, God forbid. Could you imagine me eating with him? Seriously. He, he was, he was. He was just never the twain. Peter was eating with Gentiles. The founder of the church, as it were. Remember, he's the foundation pillar of the church. And, and so all of a sudden, James speaks to him, and whatever James says to him, he stops. 
He will no longer eat with Gentiles. And so he's withdrawn himself because, and listen to this, we're told in verse 12, and the reason he does this, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now look, what do we know about Peter? What, if, there's any, if there's something we know about Peter, what is it? Well, yeah, yeah, at times he was, but, but and yeah, certainly when, when, when he was faced with uh, denying Jesus and he was scared. But there's, there's another part of his, of his character that I was thinking of. He was. And it, with, with that impulsive nature comes an element of bravery. In other words, you do things impulsively, someone's drowning, you're in there trying to save them. You're not thinking about yourself. Because of his impulse, there was a form of bravery as well as uh, cowardice at times. And so I think when we, when we ask, why is Peter afraid? Has he not learned anything from when he denied Jesus three times, when Jesus reinstated him? When we think of this guy as having some form of, uh, you know, just acting on impulse, we have to wonder why. Why would Peter be afraid? Any thoughts? Yeah, it's in that context. Thanks, Jenny. He could be. And it's obvious you're now thinking, because here's what we imagine, and this is why this passage is so difficult to work out, and, and the explanation I'm going to give you, not every theologian would necessarily agree. They're great shoes there. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I fancy a pair of those. Uh, uh, <laughs> I thought I'd been distracted. I was like, wow. Uh, so so here's, here's the point, is that, it seems like, doesn't he, he's responding to what people think of him. I want to suggest there may be something much deeper than that. Let me show you what's going on. Here's what Carson, dear Carson, one of the leading theologians of our time, here's what he argues. The two groups, the circumcision group and the group from James, the delegate, in those verses are two different groups, and that changes the way you read it. Okay? So there's two, groups, there's two groups here. So let me tell you, first of, all, first of all, you've got the delegates from James who've come to Peter and said, Peter, let me speak with you. I want you to know what's happening in Jerusalem. The second group is a circumcision group. And he said, I want you to know there's a group in Jerusalem, the circumcision group. Who would they be? Who's the circumcision group? Who, what group of people are? are the Jews. So James has sent a delegate to Peter to tell him that the Jews are doing something that makes Peter afraid to eat with Gentiles. Now look at it. Now what might these circumcision groups be doing in Jerusalem, down in Jerusalem, that's making Peter, Peter's actions with Gentiles change? Have a think. What could, what could these circumcision groups be doing up in Jerusalem that's making Peter afraid? And afraid of what? And afraid to whom? Have a think. Yeah, the Lord of the Pharisees. What's happening is that this circumcision group is persecuting Christians. These Jews are becoming Christians because these Jews that are becoming Christians are no longer doing what? The law. They're profaning Moses. And as a result of profaning Moses, what are these Jews doing to Christians? They're persecuting them. And... Who is the leader of the church? James may be leading the Jerusalem church, but who is the leader of the church? Peter. And so what is Peter doing down up in Antioch, Galatia? Eating with Gentile dogs. 
And so can you see that he's buttressing the circumcision group's argument against these Jews come converse to Christianity? I mean, you guys, evil Gentiles, you, you know, you're no longer insisting on circumcision. You're not keeping the Sabbath law. And Peter's doing it up in Antioch. And so can you see what's happening here? James sends a group to Peter to say to Peter, Look, Peter, you're the leader, the founder of this church. What you do reverberates through, uh, through geography and right back down in Jerusalem. We've been persecuted, harassed, saying that we're breaking Moses' law. We've got rid of Moses, and what you're doing, Peter, by eating with Gentiles, is adding to our persecution. It matters, Peter. And so therefore, Peter's not afraid for himself. Who's he afraid for? For the Christians in Jerusalem. And so Peter sits there and thinks, hey, 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 maybe what I'll do is I'll just quietly stop eating with my Gentile brothers. They won't think anything of it. Next time they knock on my door and say, Peter, you coming to McDonald's? We're, you know, uh, to eat some, uh, some unkosher meat. Go, oh, I'm, I'm a bit tied up today. Uh, you know what? I have snacked already. And so it begins to withdraw from the Gentile group in the hope, perhaps, that up and down in Jerusalem now, the Christians there can't be accused of, 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 of rejecting Moses. That is one explanation, and I think one that fits well with what's going on here, of why Peter is afraid, not afraid of him for himself, is afraid for his brethren back in Jerusalem that the circumcision group, the Jews, are railing on because these Jews are no longer keeping kosher. You see, here's the thing. Here's where Penny ready for us in Leviticus 11.47. This is what Peter knew. You must distinguish between the unclean and the clean between living creatures uh, that may be eaten and those that may not be eaten. It was embedded within Jewish system that, that you couldn't eat certain creatures. Who's here that likes pork? I'm disappointed in you. I am disappointed in you. Okay? If you were a Jew, you would not eat pork. Okay? Okay, now look, here's the thing. Really, as a Jew, you are not allowed to eat it. And there's all these regulations. For whatever reason, God said them. We don't have time to go into them now. Okay, no, no, Peter knew that. Every Jew knew that. And it's what made them apprehensive. But Peter had had an experience to take away his apprehension about eating pigs. You remember, what was it? Peter, he had the teaching of Jesus. We obviously forgot that. Okay, well, some parts of it. But he had something happen to him in Acts which reminded him that the Mosaic law was put aside. What happened? Pamela? It was the sheet. It's in Acts 10. I think it's going to come up. The next one, please. Or the one after that and the one after. Here it is. There's a sheet came down. It had all kinds of animals, the types that a Jew cannot eat. And then God called to him and, and the second time. And what did the voice say to him? Do not call 
anything impure that God has made pure. That's, that, was, that demonstrated the undoing of the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law. Now, Peter knew that. That's why he ate with these Gentiles. And by eating with them, can you see what his actions was doing? Because he's wanting to believe something. He's another to do it by the fact that he sat with Gentiles. Annette. Yeah. Hi, Abron. And, and <laughs> Gentiles. Uh, and, and ate unkosher meat. What was I saying? What was I saying to Bron? She's a quintessential Gentile dog, and I'm the Jew, and she knows I never go into her kitchen, okay? But now I'm in there, and I'm eating with her. What's I saying about what Christ does between Jew and Gentile? He makes them one. Galatians 3, Galatians 3 look at this. It is. He's, he demonstrates what the gospel is, that there is neither Jew nor Greek. See, if you're a Jew, Jenny, and you think you're special, no, um, seriously, seriously, let me get that across to you. There is now no special people. Okay? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man or female, for you are all special in Jesus. It's wonderful. You have to see this. The Jews were the only people that knew anything of God. They were set apart. And in a sense, they were, I guess, special. But Jesus is now saying through Paul that there's no special people in this world except those that love Jesus. And then for those that do, God unites. He puts an Arab next to an Aussie and a Gentile dog next to a Jew. And they eat together and worship together and fellowship together. And this is what Peter was doing. And you can imagine the remarkable impact he was having on the Gentile church who all this time were being told by Jews that they didn't belong in God's world. And so Peter withdraws. And in verse 13, what's happening? As a result of Peter never being available for lunch, what was happening to the other members of the Christian Jewish community in Galatia? Verse 13. They were all doing it. Because obviously it's Peter. It's like, have you heard? Peter doesn't go to dinner anymore with the dogs. That's what's happening. And consequently, even Barnabas, and he's the, he's the one that comes across to us as the, as, as, as the conciliator. What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, thank you, Michael. You've got the job, okay? Okay? Right, yeah. And, and so, and so, and even Barnabas. So everyone in Galatia, now what's happened? In Galatia, you now had a united church, Jew and Gentile. What, what do you now have? What do you now have? Thanks to Peter. You have camps. You have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And these are obviously the better ones, aren't they? Because they've got all the Jewish history. And these Gentiles are obviously less. And that's what's going on. You're, you're dividing the church. Not only are you dividing the church, you're actually destroying the church, says Paul. Listen to this. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? After beginning, of the, beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? So can you... Okay, so what's happening now? So look, Gentile dogs, Jewish Christians, okay? Now they're divided, just like there's a room here, right? Now, now you're feeling inferior that you've lost Jesus. You've lost your faith. 
Because this group is suggesting that if you don't do kosher, you're not a real good Christian, what might you start doing? You either start leaving, or you might start thinking, actually, maybe I need to do kosher. Hungry Jack's out. Okay? Okay? I now need to do kosher. Okay, maybe I've got to stop eating those pigs. Those nuisance pigs. Staying, I get stuck between your teeth. You know, I've got to... See, what's happening is now... And that's what Galatia was doing. The Galatians were now beginning to think believing in Jesus is not enough. Because Peter's demonstrating that. I now have to believe in Jesus and... And do Moses. And now all of a sudden, we've moved from a religion that is anchored in faith in Jesus to a religion that is now faith in Jesus plus the law. And when you get that, you don't have now a new, better, improved religion. Remember what happened when you pour the new wine into the old wine skins? You now have instead lost everything you've lost everything because and peter's actions were speaking louder than his words you see what we do is way more powerful than even what we teach i mean you can imagine uh we've got nick sitting there and he's got a little boy called edin now i went to see him the other day in his workplace and edin happened to come to work that day with him he was sitting there and, and then nick said look come on just watch this uh, and he's really good at this. And he's sitting there smoking this cigar and blowing uh, uh, rings. Right? Okay? Yeah, there's a picture make for that. Right? He's blowing rings. And Edin's there poking his finger through the rings. It's hilarious. And then, and then he's sitting there and he's going, Now, Edin, when you grow up, you shall never smoke. <sighs> okay? <laughs> right. Now, how much of that message is Edin going to get? <laughs> okay? Stop it. He wasn't really doing that. It wasn't a cigar. It was a cigarette. Nothing wasn't at all. Okay. So, look, the point I'm just trying to make, friends, is that Peter's actions and our actions, therefore, are much more powerful than even what we preach. That's the first point. Now, how does that apply to me and you? So, Peter is taking the rug from underneath the carpet of these juvenile Christians by almost saying by his actions, that your salvation is incomplete without Moses. Christian, here's the point for us. It's very easy to tell people it's just about faith in Jesus and then be conducting ourselves in a manner where someone coming to faith in Jesus is left to believe, hey, I've got to do a whole lot of things, otherwise I'm not quite a Christian. Like, if I don't, I don't know, Name it. What are the things that become... Uh, there's very few of us here who are entrenched in Mosaic law. I'm assuming there's nobody here who's desperately trying to keep the Sabbath laws or the ceremonial laws or the sacrificial laws. Did you bring a lamb with you today? No. Uh, or any of the laws. But, but we're likely to try and keep some of them, especially the ones that favor us. What kind of things, even if we're not keeping law, what kind of things could we be doing as Christians that may give someone the impression when they're watching us that unless I do faith in Jesus and that, I'm not quite a Christian. What could that be? 
Any thoughts? Yes. Can become a form of legalism. You can, can't you? You know, so somebody doesn't come this week, okay? Now, look, they may be working, they may be poorly, whatever else, okay? We ought to be a church. It's a very good thing to be a church, and please don't miss church if you can help it. But all of a sudden, I mean, Pippa's here today, Joe Bloggs doesn't come, so when she sees Joe Bloggs in the street, say, Ah, oh, yeah, oh, you weren't a church on Sunday, were you? And before you know it, the impression we can give to somebody who's walking in faith is that unless my faith has certain defined additives, it's somehow less than faith. And so I think it's important, Christian, that we do preach his faith in Jesus and the way we respond to each other, the way we portray ourselves must never look like we're somehow turning our good Christian practices into forms of legalism. I hope you guys are trying to do the Bible marathon. It's a really good thing to do. You read two chapters a day, every day, and then it helps you get through the Bible in two weeks. But you know, if I now... Pardon? Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I mustn't make that a legalism. And I mustn't make that do that in such a way that I make Brenton, who maybe hasn't done it, feel awful about his walk with God? That somehow he's less of a Christian than me? Can you see there's a thin line between doing what's right because it's good and it edifies our faith and doing something because we think it, it makes faith more real? It, it's such a finely tuned machine that you can easily... All Peter was doing, all he did was stop eating with Gentiles. And all of a sudden the Gentiles' faith was being corrupted because they felt less than Christian, because they weren't doing something exactly right. Let me tell you this, Christian. The only thing you have to do exactly right is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Seriously. That's the mark of conversion. And, and, and it must never, never be contaminated by having to do something in addition. I'm going to do more of that in, in the second application. Bear with me. Actions speak louder than words. Number two, and I'll be briefer here, work, work, save no one. Here's the issue. Here's why. Here's why legalism, any form of law, whether Old Testament or man-made law, uh, is dangerous because it doesn't do anything for us. At the heart of Galatians is something called justification. It's the most valuable commodity that we have. Without it, we cannot find God's heaven. Okay, I want to show you what Galatians says about it, what it is. It is verse 21. Justifica at the heart of justification is something called righteousness. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. W why is this justification, which is, which is tied to being righteous, why is that so important to knowing God? I'm sorry if I'm talking gibberish. Let me start again. Why is righteousness so important? Because this is what Galatians is all about. So important to, to faith or knowing God or being a Christian. What does righteousness do for us? Why is it important? Because it's not ours. It's not ours? 
he makes us right with God. Because what is our condition? What is Leanne's condition? What is my condition? What is Troy's condition? What is, what is uh, Sarah's condition? We are. There's something wrong between us and God. Justification or righteousness is what changes that something that's wrong with God. You and I stand in our, in our place. Look, if you're here for the first time, let me tell you a truth that may be hard to hit. God doesn't think you're wonderful. He doesn't. He doesn't owe you love. He doesn't. He has no, no responsibility to answer any of your prayers. He doesn't. Because? Sarah, because? We're sinners. We're enemies of God. You see? And, and so in order for God to rectify that situation, he gives something freely, and it solves it. It's the one jigsaw puzzle that fits perfectly, and it is righteousness or justification. Virtually one and the same thing. Right, okay. And so here's Romans 3, verse 10. Just in case we didn't know it. No one is righteous. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned. As a consequence of all our sinning, Romans 6, verse 23. There is death. And what justification does, you see, it rectifies this scenario. Nobody's righteous. We've all sinned. We're all doomed to hell. That is the scenario of every human on the planet. And what righteousness does, it, it comes in, it intercepts it, and it transforms it. Because it gives us freely something that we cannot have by ourselves. It makes us right with God. And what Peter was doing was challenging that righteousness that makes us right with God. Here's what he says, verse 15. Let me show you. We who are Jews by birth are not Gentile sinners. So he's talking to Peter, saying, look, we're Jews. Here's what we know, verse 16. We know that a man doesn't get justification, you know, be maybe right with God. By how? He goes, look, Peter, you and I know we don't get justification by? By Moses. He said, look, Peter, you know Moses doesn't give us what we need to make us right with God. Okay? Right? But by, how do we get it? We get it by faith in Jesus alone. So we too, Paul and Peter, Paul is saying to Peter, we have stopped following Moses and we've done instead, we put our faith in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified freely by God, made right with him, by faith in Christ and not by observing the law of Moses. Because, Peter, you know and I know that by observing the law of Moses, no one will be justified, made right with God. Can you see what Paul is reminding Peter? He's reminding Peter of the utter bankruptcy in trying to keep that legal code to try and make our relationship right with God. He's saying, look, Peter, we know that. You're a Jew and you know that. And so therefore, knowing that, Paul's issue is, why then are we putting that on non-Christians? Sorry, on Gentile Christians. The only way, friends, you and I can have any relationship with Jesus is by faith, it's God rather, is by faith in Jesus. There is no legal code. This church does not have a legal code. We don't use the Old Testament as a legal code for any practice that we have to keep to get right with God. The only thing that we can insist on, and we always insist on, we always preach, is that there has to be genuine and authentic and life-changing 
faith in Jesus. And Paul is almost having to remind Peter, this is what it's about. And it goes on to verse 21. Look, I don't set aside the grace of God. That means, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You know, we have this cross here. We're over here because it's the center of our faith. It reminds us Christianity hangs on this. What is the most dangerous thing to that cross? You know, you utterly destroy the power of Jesus' death by maintaining this can give you access to God. You know, there's nothing that can defeat the cross but the law. Because when you say this can, Paul's point is, look, if we can really get righteousness through Moses, if we really can find peace with God through doing law, if we really can be made right with God by being good, then get rid of this. Because you don't need it. You don't need Jesus. You don't need his death. You don't need Christianity. In fact, it means that, Jenny, you can just be a good person and you'll be fine with God. It's almost what our world believes today, doesn't it? So let me give you three points. I need to finish. Can someone tell me how long I've been going on for? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try and close this message. My time must be up. I don't have a watch to check myself. So, okay, it's one o'clock. Goodness sake. Look, somebody gave me a watch. Let me complete this message. Okay, here, here's the first thing I want to say to you. First of all, let me just bring some application here. Look, I'm going to jump very quickly to some application from what Paul was, uh, Peter was doing in Galatia. Firstly, I want you Christians, those of us who profess faith, to be very wary of Moses. Because he'll sneak in through the back door. Christian, be wary of Moses. Be wary of preachers who preach Moses. Be wary of any for anyone saying to you, you've got to do any of some of this. Let me tell you this, and you might think this is, this is not right. Be wary of the Decalogue. What's the Decalogue? The Ten Commandments. Because the Ten Commandments. Thanks, Peter. Be wary of any form of legalism creeping into your walk with Jesus. Be really wary. Don't let anybody bind you about laws you should keep. Keep Moses at bay. Keep your faith pure. Because it can be so easily contaminated and easily made void. Here's what, here's what we've already quoted, haven't we? we already quoted, Know that a man is not justified by observing law, but by faith in Jesus. It must be Jesus. It must be, in the, in the, in the words of the Reformers, solos Christos. Jesus only, or Christ only. Second thing, beware of mutations of Moses, because Moses has cousins. If Moses is the Old Testament law, who are his cousins? I wasn't thinking of that, but maybe. I was thinking his cousins are anybody that preaches any form of doing good to please God. What is the fundamental basis of what our world out there thinks about getting right with God? Obeying laws by being good. They're all cousins of Moses. Let me just tell you, friends, the Bible is absolutely clear. Let me quote this one verse to you. The Bible is quintessentially clear that by trying to attain, if we try and attain our goal by human effort, we get nothing Christian. You don't have to. Let me say this with utmost caution. 
by coming to this church every week does not help yourself, doesn't make your salvation any more real. By keeping the Bible reading program every day doesn't make your salvation any more real. Okay? By taking communion or getting baptized in a church doesn't make your salvation any more real. Your salvation is real 100% by faith in Jesus and nothing in addition to that makes it more real. So beware of Moses' cousins. That yes, you believe in Jesus, but you have to do this. Now look, I'm not denigrating reading the Bible every week, doing communion, getting baptized and coming to church. We're not. I just want to distinguish what makes your faith real from what benefits and edifies your Christian walk. And there's a difference. So beware of Moses' cousin. And the final one to anyone who may be new to church, beware, beware, if I can just find my notes here, beware of, of a gospel that's based on works. If the average person I speak to on the street will tell me that I'm going to get to heaven because I'm not as bad as my neighbor or that I try and do good, and we try and we assume, do we not assume that if I do enough good works, if I'm good enough, somehow when God weighs me in the balance at the end of time, I may have done enough to do what? To swing God's favor towards me. And almost every religion in the world, almost every system in the world, believes in a system whereby we get right with God by doing enough to outweigh the bad we've done. Why do you think these billionaires give so much money to charity towards the end of their lives? Why do you think they do that? What are they trying to do with God? They're trying to buy him. Yeah. Friends, I wonder, are you caught in that trap where you believe if I do enough good, then God will somehow favor me and it'll tip the balance in me getting to heaven? Here's what the Bible says. I want you to realize that there is no benefit in trying to be good because we'll never be good enough for God. And so God has now given you, given me, given every person on our planet an opportunity to, to, to tip the balance in our favor by doing nothing of good works, but by simply, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, whoever, and he's a really good person, Whoever believes in him and attends church five times a week, who believes in him and is baptized three times, does communion morning and evening, gives tithes every week. Can you see the point? Friends, here's the point to you that the way we get faith in, the way we go to heaven, have peace with God, have his favor tipped towards us, is not by trying to be good, we'll never be good enough, is by simply, objectively, Sincerely, wholeheartedly believing Jesus. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. It means however you came into this building this morning, however far away you were from God, whatever religion you were tied up in, however much good works you were failing to do, you can leave this building having believed in Jesus right with your maker, at peace with him, and assured For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. And for that, the purity of that gospel, Christian, 
we must fight tooth and nail. We'll see more in Galatians as we look through. We thank you for your time. God bless you. I wonder if the musicians will join us. We're going to sing. If you